This morning, we are going to continue our study through 1 Peter, and we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 4. And verse 4 starts like this, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So beautiful words from Peter this morning. And we see this idea of God as a living stone uh, repeated throughout scripture. Um, And Here we get specifically a living stone, but in other places, we still have this reference as God as a rock or a stone. In Daniel 2, we see the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar has this strange dream that he doesn't understand or know what it means, and he appeals to all the wise men in Babylon and the Chaldeans And he asks someone to tell him his own dream and what it means. And all of the wise men of Babylon couldn't do it. They, they, there was no way that they could know what Nebuchadnezzar dreamt. But Daniel comes along and Daniel says, you know, like, I got this. I consulted the Lord and he gave me this wisdom. He, he knew what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was Not only that, but God gave him the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So that dream was a large image. It had a head and shoulders of gold. It had a chest and arms of silver. It had a belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, and feet and toes of iron and clay mixed together. So this really strange thing comes up in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Daniel explains to him that this dream is a type of the different nations throughout history. And he doesn't yet know what those nations will be, but we have insight that Daniel didn't even have now because that history has passed, most of it, not all of it yet. But we see the head of gold as being Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian empire. Okay, and then that is taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire, the chest and arms of silver. And then the Grecian Empire is the belly and thighs of brass, and the Roman Empire is the legs of iron. The iron symbolized the strength of the Roman Empire. So we have all of those, and that's all well and good. The feet, the mixture of iron and clay, symbolizes that this last confederation that comes after the Roman Empire will be fragments of the Roman Empire in the iron, but it will also be partly brittle, the clay. So it will not be as strong as the Roman Empire was, but it will definitely be um, an offshoot of that old Roman Empire. So that confederacy of 10 nations, the 10 toes, that is yet in the future, I believe. I don't think we've seen that yet. And then Nebuchadnezzar sees this rock, not cut with hands, that smites 
this statue from the feet. So this rock comes out, not cut with hands, smashes the feet of this image, and it says it all crumbles and turns to dust. That's interesting. So the rock is Jesus. He comes and smites this federation, uh, what we would generally call like the uh, government of the Antichrist, that 10 nation federation. Jesus Christ comes again, smashes that confederation, and the whole thing falls. The institutions of man, the government of man falls. Then that stone, not cut with hands, grows into a mountain that covers the whole earth. That's the coming kingdom that Jesus will build on the earth. So we see God, Jesus, as the stone which smites the statue, the figure. And again, in Deuteronomy 32, and this is the song of Moses, he refers to God as a rock. And it's interesting that little g-gods of other nations are also referred to as rocks. But, he says, their rock is not like our rock. That's verse 31. So, yeah, they're, they're little rocks, but their rock is not like our rock. Our rock is different. And when Moses was leading these Israelites through the desert, God provided that rock from which flowed water to sustain the Israelites. We remember that story from Exodus. And the first time that the Israelites needed water, God told Moses, go to the rock and strike the rock and it will bring forth water for you. So Moses did that. He went to the rock, he struck it, and God was right. Water flowed out of the rock and provided this water in the middle of the desert for the Israelite people, the people of God. The second time they needed water, though, God told Moses specifically, go to the rock and speak to it, and it will give you water. He did not say to smite it again, but what did Moses do? He went up to the rock and he whacked it. He was frustrated, and that messed up this picture that God was trying to build about Jesus. Jesus, again, as the rock. And in 1 Corinthians uh, 10.4, Paul tells us that that rock, referring to this rock in the wilderness, was Christ. That's a strange, strange sentence. And I don't know that we fully even understand that right now, but he says that rock was Christ. Thus, this picture is set up where that rock only needed to be smitten to be whacked once right? And the same is with Jesus. One sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the the ultimate high priest only had to be smitten once for all sins. And Moses in smiting the rock again, messed up that picture. And thus he was not allowed to enter the promised land. He had to pay for his sin. But this picture of God as a rock is seen leading up to the New Testament. And then here we have God, we are coming to him as a living stone. So it's not like your pet rock that you keep at the house. It's not inanimate. It's a living stone. So God is very personal with us. 
He's not impersonal as some would, would think, uh, especially like the theistic evolutionists. I think God kind of wound up the world like a top, just let it go, you know, putting these evolutionary uh, mechanisms in place. Well, that's not the God of the Bible. He's personal with us. He's living. He's involved in our lives. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. The Jews largely rejected Jesus when he came. And it was mostly because he didn't fit their predetermined picture of what the Messiah should look like. And we talked about this a little bit last week, but they thought that this Messiah that was coming would immediately set up this earthly empire. They would overthrow the Russian, not the Russians, (laughs) maybe the Russian too, yeah. They would overthrow the Romans and set up this empire uh, for the Jewish people. But that's not at all what Jesus did on his first trip to earth. Uh, He was the servant of all. He placed himself underneath everyone else. And that's not what they had in their mind for the Messiah. So largely they rejected Jesus. He was rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. There's that word precious again that Peter likes. Jesus was chosen by God before the foundation of the world. God had set up this perfect plan for salvation, knowing exactly the price that he would have to pay to redeem you before he created you. And that's something that, you know, a lot of people uh, get kind of tied up in like self-worth and you don't uh, fully understand what you're worth until you understand what it took to purchase you. And that's, that's really what something's worth, right? Like I ask how much this podium would be worth. Well, it's worth whatever somebody will pay for it. That's what I heard growing up. And I think it's really the same with us. I mean, if nobody would pay anything for you, then what are you worth? Well, not much. But if someone determines what they're willing to pay, and it's the most precious thing that there ever was, the blood of God's son, well, then you're worth a whole lot, right? So that's really where our worth comes from. It comes from God. And he determined that before he laid the foundations of the world. It says in verse 5, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So it says that we are being built up a spiritual house. And this is talking about the church. The church is this spiritual house and a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. The priests of the Old Covenant in the Old Testament uh, would offer sacrifices to God from the Israelites, from the people. And the people couldn't offer these sacrifices directly to God. Uh, In the law, it took a priest as a in-between between the people and God. After the old covenant has been replaced by this new covenant in Jesus. 
Jesus is now the ultimate high priest, the perfect high priest. And he now intercedes for us. He is our go-between between us and the Father. So he presents the sin sacrifice, the sin offering. And if you remember back in Leviticus, it outlines the sin offerings that the Jews were to present unto God. And that was a cover. It was not effectual in removing the sin, but it was a cover for the sin. Now, as Jesus comes, he works out his plan of salvation. He becomes that sacrificial lamb of the sin offering. And it's a lamb that is spotless. It's without blemish and without spot, like we talked about last week. And this makes the old covenant outdated. And now you have Jesus coming in as our go-between, the ultimate high priests. But it says we also are a holy priesthood. So what do we make of that? Well, we offer spiritual sacrifices. It's not as a sacrifice atoning for our sins. Jesus has already done that as our perfect high priest. We offer sacrifices as living sacrifices. It says in Romans 12, 1, that we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. So this is the kind of sacrifice that we are making. We are presenting ourselves. And truly, we can't make any other offerings to God until we offer ourselves up to him. And it takes that before anything else can happen. We have to be totally uh, given over to him, to his will uh, for our lives before we can offer up these living sacrifices. If I don't belong to God, then I'm not going to live for him. It doesn't make any sense. Also in Psalm 51, 17, it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. It's another kind of sacrifice that we can make to God. And it's not the shedding of blood anymore. Thankfully, it's not that. But um, a broken spirit, you know, uh, A.W. Tozer has a really good quote that I really like, and I can't remember all of it because it's a little bit wordy. But it basically says that um, a broken spirit is what sets up a person to receive the gospel fully. Because you can't have the gospel come into you if you are whole in and of yourself. There has to be a realization that who you are is not enough for salvation and never can be. So you break down and then Jesus, the gospel of Christ comes in and fills you back up. That's, that's the importance of this broken spirit and a contrite heart. And an interesting study is to go through the new Testament and look at these different sacrifices that it says the new Testament saints can offer. And it's, it's interesting. And I only named a couple, but there's several more. So verse six, it says, therefore it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone elect precious. And he who believes on him will by no means uh, be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone, which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 
and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. This verse 6 references Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, and that in the New King James says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation. Okay, we're going to get back to that word foundation. A tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. So he is talking about a foundation stone. There's this neat story, and it, it really is a neat story. Like, I'm not being facetious. But of this, um, I don't know what they're called. It's the, the main stone in an archway that everything else is built around. There's A what? Keystone. Keystone, that's right. So there's a story of the keystone of the temple when they were cutting it out, being thrown away into the grass or something, being forgotten about, rejected. And they finally built the whole temple and they were looking for this last little stone to make it complete. And they finally realized that that stone that they had rejected before was that keystone. Well, that is a cool story and it's from tradition. It's not from the Bible. But really what it's talking about is this foundation stone. So you laid this stone down and... (laughs) Off of that stone, you laid the other stones. So it directed the angles of every other stone that was to make up this building. So it was a foundation, and it informed how everything else was to be put together. In the same way that Jesus is now our cornerstone, our foundation, and he should determine the angles of everything else in our life. Ministry. How should we do ministry? Jesus should determine the angle of that. How should I raise my kids? How should I love my wife or my husband? All of these things that make up our life, the building of our life, should come off of that foundation that Jesus has set in our life. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Again, precious, it's all over the place. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So he says, to you who believe, he is precious. And That is so true. And I can't really think of a better way to describe Jesus to the believer than precious. And truly, there's nothing like it, and there can't be. But to those who are disobedient, and this is talking about just simply the people that reject Jesus as their Savior, to the people who are disobedient, specifically the Jews at this point he's talking about. And he references this in verse 8 when he says, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So this this stone of stumbling and a rock of offense is referenced by Paul in 1 Corinthians. And that's in chapter 1, verse 23. He says, but we preach Christ crucified 
to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So again, you got Paul and Peter coming together on this issue of Christ as a stumbling block and a rock of offense. Uh, This verse 8 is primarily speaking of the religious world when it says that uh, those who are disobedient, because there is a, a different world that just completely doesn't want anything to do with religion or believing in anything, really. And, I mean... You know, they're, they're kind of on their own over there. And then you have the religious world. So the Jews would fit into the religious category for sure. I mean, they were, they were zealous for what they believed. And to them, these new Christians in the first century are coming into the, the scene and they're saying that my feasts are worth nothing, but they're just a shadow of this substance, which is Christ. Are you kidding me? I've devoted my entire life to keeping these laws, to observing these feasts, to making these sacrifices. And you're telling me that it's, it's all garbage now. It's been replaced. Are you kidding me? That's a stumbling block. It's a, it's an offense to those people, but that is the truth. I mean, that's, that's the wonderful revelation that Jesus has brought with him. Isaiah 8, 14 through 15 says that he will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the house of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and they shall fall and be broken, be snared and be taken. So uh, back in our uh, passage in Peter, First Peter, it says a stone of stumbling. That word stone is lithos, lithos. The word for stumbling on a path where rocks may slip. So it's the idea is like a very small thing that you trip over. It's like you're slipping on a gravel parking lot or something. And then the the rock of offense, it's a rock. That word is petra. It's like an immovable mass of stone. So it's this giant blockade. And Jesus is both of these things to these religious Jews. And, you know, it really brings us to the question of who is Christ in your life? Who would you say that Christ is? Jesus came into Caesarea Philippi and asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? See, it doesn't matter what anyone else says that I am, but the question that's being asked of each one of us is who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, Peter, author of 1 Peter, answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered back to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros, 
And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So on this confession, on the confession that Jesus is Christ, the son of God, Jesus will build his church. It's on that confession. It's not on Peter himself. So you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's encouraging to me, you know, that Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. He doesn't say on this rock, pastors will build my church. So it's not our job to to build anything, really. I mean, we just carry out the work that God has for us. And he also doesn't say that on this rock, I will build your church. It's not our church either. It's his church and he does the building. So we can plant seeds and we can water those, but only God gives the increase. And in Acts, it says that the Holy Spirit added to their number daily. So it wasn't the apostles that did that. It was God. So I, that takes a lot of pressure off of us. You know, we don't, we don't really have that responsibility. Verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This word generation is genos, and it can be used to refer to a nation, a tribe, offspring, or like it's translated here, a generation. And this is telling us that we are together as a family under Christ. Uh, we, We remember there are no distinctions between us under Christ, neither Jew nor Greek, uh, slave nor free, and even male or female under Christ. And this familial bond under Christ does serve to separate us from the rest of the world. It sets us apart from those that are in the world. And we should look differently than the people who are in the world. Because we're born of a different seed. They're born of corruptible seed, while we're born of incorruptible seed. It's that second birth, the new birth. And it says that we are a special people. This means like a purchased possession. So we have literally been purchased by God. And we are special to him. Uh, He purchased us with his son's life. Now, We see Christians, and it's sad, but they're not really plugged into the body of Christ. They kind of do their own thing, like, oh, I can get by without going to church. I still have my Bible, and I still have God. And while you do have your Bible, and you do have God, and that's wonderful, it's hard for a finger to carry out its full potential when not attached to the hand, isn't it? It's hard for the hand to carry out its potential when not attached to the arm, which is attached to the torso, which has nerves running through it, innervating all of it and getting directions from the head, the brain, and the head of the church is Christ. So it's really sad when you see these Christians who are not plugged in somewhere because you know that they're not living their full potential as a member of the body of Christ. 
Okay, so it is important to be together with fellow believers. And we are told uh, as the end comes near that we should not forsake the gathering together of us. And I think that's extremely important. We need to remain together even as things progress and go downhill. Verse 10, it says, who were who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Who once were not a people? Now, Gentile is a word that refers to anybody who's not a Jew. Okay, so you've got the Jewish people group, and then the Gentiles, who is everybody else. That in itself is not really a people, right? We once were not a people, but being grafted into this, what is called an olive tree in Romans, of God, uh, he makes us a people, a people group under Christ. So once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Now, this is not saying that the church has taken the place of national Israel. I don't believe that God has finished working with national Israel. He still has promises to fulfill with them specifically. And the church is not taking over that position. Um, So that's not what we're saying when we say that we are the people of God, but we're speaking in a spiritual sense. Uh, National Israel is literally what Christians have become spiritually, the people of God. And, you know, in Romans eleven twenty four, it says, For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature, talking about Gentiles coming into the people of God, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, talking about the Jews, be grafted into their own olive tree? So the gospel does not exclude the Jews. By any means, uh, the Jews are still his chosen people. And how much more would God love to graft them back into their own natural tree, back into him, than graft us foreigners in? I mean, really, we're privileged. And that is really the privilege that we have. It goes back to that love the agape love. He didn't owe us anything, uh, but he opened the way for us to come into the, the presence of him and into this olive tree be grafted in as foreigners. The Gentiles have now become spiritually what the nation of Israel had been literally. Hosea 2.23 prophesies this. It says, then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. So even back in Hosea, we have the prophecy that eventually Gentiles would be grafted into this olive tree. That's pretty cool. Primarily, the prophecy refers to literal Israel. But hereafter, uh, we would be fully that 
which in their best days, they were only partially, that is God's people. Verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So he uses the word sojourners, and that means strangers, uh, people who are living in a foreign land. If you haven't noticed, we're living in a foreign land. Uh, This world is not our home, and this is not where we have our permanent residence, thankfully. You have the world out there who uh, we'll see in just a couple verses is going to call you evildoers. And that's the world that we're in, and that's the world that you'll go back into when you leave this place. Uh, But we are strangers living in a foreign land. He also calls us pilgrims. And pilgrims were those who lived alongside of those in a foreign land. So we are living among each other in this foreign land. And our citizenship is in heaven. It's not in Stephenville. Okay, we've got two addresses, remember? One in Stephenville, one in heaven. And I eagerly await to be moving on to the next address. We're simply passing through the world as strangers and pilgrims. And we are to be distinct from the world. And it's sad to see that some of us, some churches, have tried to soften the edge of the gospel. They've tried to soften their position on things to become more culturally relevant and try to um, blend in with the culture. And I don't doubt that these are with good intentions. I don't doubt that good intentions can have bad results, you know. So I don't doubt the intentions there necessarily, but that's simply not what we've been called to do. We've been called to be the salt and the light of the earth. We've not been called to be the dirt that blends in with everybody else, you know. So it's, you can keep the the smoke shows and the the flashy lights, but you know, just give us the gospel in its pure, unadulterated form, and that's what we will preach, and that's what Paul preached coming to the Corinthians. He says that he he didn't come to them in excellence of speech but he simply preached Christ and him crucified. So that's what we endeavor to do. And it says, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. This is interesting. This is an encouragement to me, and I'll tell you why. He's talking to believers, and he's saying to them, you must continually abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Satan will plant the lie in your mind that since you struggle with X, whatever it is, you must not be saved since you struggle with something. And that's a lie. You can struggle with something and still be saved. In fact, I would say that that is a mark that you are saved because dead men don't wrestle. Spurgeon said that. Dead men don't wrestle. So if you are wrestling with something, I think that's, that's good that you have that conscience that guides you in the right direction. You may give in to it every once in a while. And we can go to God through Jesus 
to receive forgiveness for that. But the fact that you're wrestling tells me that there's something wrestling against the evil in you. The flesh and the spirit are constantly at war with each other. And that's something that you don't just get out of once you become saved. I mean, it's literally who we are. We're evil. Uh, But Christians now, since they've been saved, have the spirit that comes in them. And then they are no longer governed by that fleshly desire, but they're governed by the spiritual things. They're governed by the Holy Spirit. And I'll briefly share this. I was thinking about this last night, and I was like, there's no way I'm going to keep it together tomorrow for this. So bear with me, please. Um, But I was talking to a friend of mine not long ago, and they grew up in a very Christian home. Like it was a good home, good Christian parents. This kid, I was talking to them. I say kid about my age. Uh, I was talking to them and um, I asked them where they went to church in Stephenville. They said, well, I, I don't really go to church anymore. I, I used to grew up in church, but I haven't found a church home in Stephenville. I was like, oh, well, you should come out to Calvary. You know, it's really great. Got some great people. And they're like, well, you know, I'd love to, but I just, I feel really guilty every time I go to church. And I've found it easier just to keep living my life the way I do and not go to church because I don't want to feel guilty about it. And I do not often find myself speechless, but I did not have anything to say to that. And my flesh wanted to start preaching to them. You know, have you not read Romans 1? God will give you up to these vile passions. And thankfully, I was just quiet and just loved on them. But um, that's hard to see in somebody that you know. And um, again, it's that, that conviction that steers you in the right direction. If you don't take heed to that, eventually God's going to say, okay, you've made your choice. And he's not making that choice for you. He didn't harden Pharaoh's heart until Pharaoh hardened his own heart. You'll see in the scripture, the first few times it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then the last few times it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So you never really know when you are not going to be able to receive what God is setting in front of you. God will always be there. His arms will always be open. But your heart may not always be in the right condition to receive that. So when it is in the condition to receive that, if you're not born again, take advantage of that. And if God stirs in your heart that you need to confess him as your savior, do that. Because you don't know if you'll have tomorrow. And you don't know if your heart will be in the right condition to accept that tomorrow. He may say that he's let you go. So while you still have a chance, take advantage of what God is extending to you. And I pray for that 
that person that I was talking about. And I hope that they get back into church, but there's not a whole lot that I can do except truly love them and just be an example of that salt and that light in their life. And then, you know, I plant the seed and God brings the increase. So if you could join with me in praying for that person, uh, they will remain unnamed, obviously, uh, but that would be, be great. And this is also why we're doing this college Bible study, you know, and college young adults, it's a young adults Bible study, but it's aimed at these kids at Tarleton Hill College, Ranger College that are in this place. And I have a very, very soft place in my heart for these kids because that's where I was. I found myself away from the church and weak when I got to college. I had nowhere to be plugged into, and I was starting to fall away just like that person is. And thankfully, I found this place and the word that Justin was teaching. And the word brought me back because I saw it all and it was very real to me at that point. So that's exactly, exactly what we're trying to do with this new college Bible study. We're trying to get the kids to pick up their Bibles and start reading them. And then, so last night I spent some time thinking about this and this new Bible study, sorry, it's more of an evangelical effort for me right now. It's reaching the kids and trying to bring them back here so that we can grow them. So for whatever that's worth, that's what was on my heart. And so there you go. But moving on, uh, verse 12 says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, this is similar to what I was just talking about. This person, what I can do is be an example to conduct myself in a way that they will look at my life and say, hey, like there's something different about this guy, and that's what I want. Like Whatever he's got is what I want. And I'm not claiming that that is how it is, you know, but, but that is the ideal and that's what we should be striving for. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. So this time the word Gentiles is just referring to the unbelieving world and just those who are without Christ, the Gentiles. It is true that we as Christians will be the only Bible that some people will ever read. You know, I, I know that's been said before, but I mean, it's, it's true. Okay, we will be the only Bible that some people ever read. It says that when they speak against you as evildoers, and, you know, this is currently the world that we live in. Those who are without Christ speak of those with Christ as evildoers. You see the... and. Just one example that pops in my mind is the church burnings in Canada. Uh, You know, the Canadians are declaring certain passages of the Bible as hate speech. 
and they're outlawing entire passages of the Bible in Canada. That has not come to America yet, but I do have a feeling that it's on the way. I mean, you can look around and see things closing in. Um, but even back in, in Peter's day, you know, he's writing this under Nero. The persecution that Nero placed upon the church was tremendous. And it's nothing like we have to deal with. Okay, even in Canada, like it's, it's another level. This guy was lighting his garden with the burning bodies of Christians. Like that's, that's a different level. So he writes this under Nero. He says that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So they observe your good works and they glorify God in the day of visitation. When it says day of visitation, there's two things that it could mean. Okay, and I'll give you my opinion, but the first idea is that it's talking about the second coming of Christ, the day of visitation, when Christ comes back. Um, These unbelievers will remember your good works that you showed them, and they will glorify God right before they burn. That doesn't seem to make sense to me, but I mean, that is one of the ideas. The other idea, which I would, I could get on board with is that the day of visitation is talking about their day of conversion when Christ visits them personally and convicts them and they are saved. Then they will look back on your works, which you've given to them as an example, as a testimony of what Christ has done in your life. They will see that and they will glorify God for that. And that makes a whole lot more sense to me. Um, So the day of visitation, I would say, is just the day of their conversion. By your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. I'm with you. I don't like this either. Okay. My flesh does not like this because I naturally want to be defiant of the government. But bear with me. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the king. So um, we see this exhortation to submit ourselves to the government. And, you know, I'm glad that we do have laws. They keep us in line and they keep us safe for the most part. Uh, I'm glad that we have speed limits. I'm glad that we have laws that govern our interactions with each other. I can't go up to somebody and like attack them. Okay, that law protects people, right? The speed limits, they protect you from other crazy drivers going around at whatever speed they like. So we are to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. It's not for our own sake, it's for the Lord's sake. You see, civil disobedience isn't really consistent with the testimony that we're supposed to have in the world. 
Okay. We are supposed to be the example. And there's people that get arrested for some strange things. Okay. And we are not to get ourselves arrested for strange things, for silly stuff. Okay. However, Peter, the guy that's writing this to us, along with Paul, Peter was crucified. Paul was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. He got that privilege, uh, didn't have to be crucified. They both died doing exactly what they're telling us not to do, or rather not doing what they are telling us to do. Okay, They were defiant of the government, and that's what got them killed. So where do we draw this line? Well, when the government asks you to sin, that's where we draw the line. When the government is imposing itself above what Scripture says, above the Holy Spirit, and above your convictions, that's where we have to draw the line. No, you're not going to make me do this. You're not going to make me say this. I'm not going to live this way. Uh, Because they will have to submit to a higher authority as well. They are not the highest authority. God is the ultimate authority, and he is the ultimate one that we must submit to. So yes, we submit ourselves to the government uh, as an example to those around us. But when the government tries to place itself above God, we submit to God. We don't submit to the government. So that's what I'm seeing in all of this. And the ideal, this ideal situation is given in verse 14. It says, or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So that's what government should be. It should bring judgment on evildoers and praise to those who do good. But we know that doesn't always happen. Of course, that's the ideal. Verse 15, it says, for this is the will of God. So, hey, you want to know the will of God? This is part of it. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Sounds kind of fun, doesn't it? It says silence. That word literally means to muzzle. We are to muzzle the ignorance of foolish men. How? Not by arguing. Not by... Uh, displaying our intellectual abilities, but by doing good, heaping burning coals on their heads, okay? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This is the will of God, that by doing good, not arguing, you may put to silence, muzzle, the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. You know, people kind of have this idea, and it's true. You have liberty in Christ, and that is a wonderful thing. But you get people that claim this liberty as a, like a hall pass. You know, in school, you got the hall pass that said you could be in the halls doing, you know, going to the bathroom. They take this liberty of Christ as a hall pass 
to live however they want because they have liberty in Christ. Well, that liberty in Christ does not make you free to live however you want. It, it doesn't make you free to live in the flesh. It frees you from having to live in the flesh. Okay, that's an important distinction there. It frees us from the fleshly desires, not frees us to the fleshly desires. So the world is constantly governed and run by these desires, the desires of the flesh. But as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit, which negates our allegiance to the flesh. So the new man has superseded the old man in control of your life. So you now live by the spirit, not by the flesh. So we shouldn't use this liberty in Christ as a cloak for vice, vice being wickedness. We don't want this liberty to cover our wickedness, but it's really a ticket so that we don't have to live that way. So we don't have to be ruled by alcoholism, by sex, by drugs, whatever it is. If you've lived under the rule of one of those things, you know that they're a harsh master and they don't want what's best for you. Well, you're freed now from those things ruling over you and you're given liberty in Christ. In the Old Testament, you had these bond servants who served their masters for seven years, usually to pay off a debt. When their seven years was up, they were allowed to go free. But if they had a wife, if they had a good master, if they loved their master and their home, they could choose to remain with that master and with their wife, kids maybe, um, and they would pledge themselves for the rest of their lives to that master. The master would take him out to the doorpost and pierce his ear. Okay, That signified that that bondservant had found a good master. And he wanted, he chose to be a slave for life to that master. So he had the choice to be free, but he chose to stick around and serve a good master. Well, that's the quest of all of our lives. We're trying to find a good master. And if a good master was alcohol, alcoholics would be the happiest people in the world, but they're not. You know, if lust and if sex was a good master prostitutes would be the most fulfilled people in the world right so we are free now not to be ruled by those things but to be ruled by the only good master which is christ so that is the liberty that we have in christ and we're not to use it as a cloak for wickedness but as bond servants again back to this idea of the bond servant pierced ear of God. We choose to be servants of God for the rest of our lives. That's the conscious choice that we make. It's not, um, it's not something that's forced upon you. You get free will and you can choose to serve God or to not. And that determines your destiny. He closes uh, this little piece with uh, a few short exhortations. He says, honor all people You know, there is a sanctity to every life, saved and unsaved. All human beings and were paid for 
by the blood of Christ. Now, you need to apply that blood to be saved. But there is sanctity to every human life. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. In John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Fear God with this reverential fear. It's not a fear that's tormentive, but as a fear, like a son fears his father, there's that reverence there. Fear God and honor the king. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. No, we, if we're honest with ourselves, the government is not our problem. We will pay our taxes, albeit possibly grudgingly, but we will pay them. Um, but what was that exhortation earlier in the passage that we saw? Well, he said, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether, the king, whether to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Now, he says in verse 11, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. That's our real issue, those fleshly lusts that war against the soul. You know, we will submit to the government, but as Christians, that should be our focus. This war against the fleshly desires. So I would challenge you this week, put more of an emphasis on that maybe, less on, you know, the government. Because I know that's a hot topic right now. Everybody's talking about it. And, you know, it doesn't look great, I'll admit. But we have other things to worry about as Christians. And we know the one who put the president in control. Uh, Daniel, actually in chapter 2, the same chapter that we were looking at with Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel says that he raises up and he takes down kings. You know, God is in control of this whole flow, this everything. He's in control. He has it all in the palm of his hand. So, you know, don't worry about it too much. I mean, I know it's interesting to look at, but but we know the one who holds everything in the palm of his hand. So that's encouraging as we move into this week. Let's close in a word of prayer.